Good evening. Good evening. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, that's where we'll be this evening. Beginning in verse 16 through the remainder of the chapter. It's going to be with you all on this Good Friday. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill that which the scriptures says, They divided his garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for... That Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who has borne witness, his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
They lead Jesus there. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we study this passage, Lord, may we be pointed to your Son who gave up his life, who said, it is finished, Lord. And in that, finished the work of fulfilling the law, finished the work of living a perfect life, finished the work, Lord, of completing his ministry in this world and dying for our sins so that all who believe in you could be forgiven. Lord, not just today, but every day, may we be people who look to the cross and who look to the Savior who died and rose. May we live our lives in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's something about us as humans where we feel this need to memorialize and honor sacrifice. In Washington, D.C., you have the Vietnam Wall, the World War II Memorial, the Korean War Memorial. There's a national World War I Memorial in Kansas City and a national Civil, Civil War Memorial in Gettysburg. Battlefields from the American Revolution and Civil War are historical sites that millions of people visit every year. There's the September 11th National Memorial and Museum in New York. And nationally, there are actually over 500 9-11 memorials in America. Between memorials, museums, monuments, statues, and historical sites, we have thousands of locations all across the country where we memorialize and remember sacrifice and heroism. In Christianity, there is no more prominent symbol of our faith than the cross. The place where it looked like the ministry of Jesus came to its ending, but where really it was just finding its beginning. This evening, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the burial of Jesus as we continue our series that we've been preaching in John chapter 19. Good Friday is the day when Jesus died on the cross, and it is the day that we remember the ultimate sacrifice where we remember the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. And so we study the crucifixion this evening. On Sunday this past week, or earlier this week, we looked at the final events before the cross as Pilate sent Jesus to be crucified. And as I mentioned a moment ago this evening, we look at this section in three scenes, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the burial of Jesus. And the point of this passage is simple, that Jesus died to save a fallen humanity. With that, we'll jump into our passage and first begin with the crucifixion. John begins by describing that Jesus being taken to his place of crucifixion. Beginning our passage, the end of verse 16 into 17, says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. It was a tradition that a person who was sentenced to Roman crucifixion would carry the top beam of their crossbar of the cross to the site of their crucifixion. From the other Gospels, we know that at some point, Jesus had lost the ability to carry his crossbeam, and so a man named Simon of Cyrene was recruited to assist him. John adds that Jesus was taken to a place called the place of a skull. 
We're not exactly sure if that name comes simply from the fact that it was a site for crucifixions or if there was also something geographically there which resembled a skull or called that to attention. There's a lot of agreement historically and among contemporary biblical scholars that we actually know the general location of this place where Jesus was crucified. The belief is that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is the site both of the crucifixion and also where the tomb where Jesus was buried are found. And that short prelude in John 19, after that, John quickly takes us to the crucifixion itself. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. John does not actually give us a lot of detail specifically related to the crucifixion itself. Crucifixion was well known in the first century, and so a lot of the gory details are not mentioned. In the ancient world, execution methods were often designed to be as shameful and humiliating and torturous as possible. John also makes mention of two others being crucified along with Jesus. All four Gospels include this detail. It highlights the innocence of Jesus contrasted with the guilt of the people with whom he is crucified. Beginning in verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then John says in verse 20, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In Roman crucifixions, it was not uncommon to have a written inscription of what the condemned man had been charged and convicted with. Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, we've talked a lot about kingship in these chapters in John over the past few weeks. And on the cross, when Pilate puts it forth as a condemnation against Jesus, Pilate is unwittingly testifying to the truth because Jesus is the king of the Jews. In God's providence, he can still use that which is sin in accordance with his own plans. God can still use the world working against him as a way to amplify his message. The text mentions that the inscription was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the commonly spoken language in Judea where Jesus ministered. Latin was the official government and military language of Rome. Greek was the regionally dominant language. And so it's written in all three of those languages, proclaiming to the world that Jesus is the king of the Jews. When Pilate writes this, or most likely had somebody else write it on his behalf, the Jewish council is displeased by this. They don't want it written as a statement of fact that Jesus is the king of the Jews. They want it written that Jesus claimed to have been the king of the Jews. Perhaps as another antagonistic act against the council, Pilate refuses. He says, what I have written, I have written. The Jewish people don't recognize Jesus as their king. 
but he's crucified under the written word that he is their king. It's also another picture of Jesus as the king who suffers. Verses 23 and 24, we see the continued humiliation of Jesus on the cross as Roman soldiers gamble for his clothing. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill with the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. In the ancient world, Roman world, people were generally crucified naked as a furthering of their shame and humiliation. Crucifixion was often a public spectacle. John has already alluded to that. People seeing Jesus be crucified. The condemned had no rights. The fact that the guards vie for the meager possessions that Jesus had was not unusual. Although John does mention that Jesus had a tunic which was seamless and that the soldiers actually cast lots for it. Now, think for a moment about John mentioning Jesus' tunic. Because in John chapter 13, when Jesus is at the Last Supper and he washes the feet of his disciples, there also Jesus lays aside his outer garment. That incident and the washing of the disciples' feet points to the humility of Jesus and to the humiliation of Jesus. Now, we've spent a lot of time in John, so John chapter 13, we actually preached on almost a year ago exactly. It was last April. And even though it's only six chapters away, John chapter 13 is the eve before Jesus is crucified. So it's a decent amount of biblical text, but in terms of time, it's a recent event, both for Jesus and in the minds of his followers and his disciples, that the night before they had seen Jesus take off this outer garment and wash their feet. And here they see Roman soldiers thuggishly gambling for it. The humility and humiliation of Jesus and washing the disciples' feet and the humility and humiliation of Jesus on the cross. Back in our passage in verse 24, John says that this actually fulfills a prophecy in the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm 22 where garments are gambled over. As we saw with Pilate, and really with the high priest as well in other passages, we see too that the guards, though they are wicked, they are unwittingly fulfilling the divine plan. Verse 25, we turn from those who are working against Jesus to those who are at the cross who love Jesus. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That's four women. All four Gospels mention women at the cross. Now, for just a moment, I want to give a brief aside. Stick with me for a moment as we consider these women. John mentions the mother of Jesus. Interestingly, he does not refer to her as, as Mary here. Or, for that matter, anywhere else in the Gospel of John. The only other place where he references the mother of Jesus is in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast, and there as well he addresses her as the mother of Jesus. John's gospel is the only gospel that never addresses Jesus' mother by name. 
It's interesting that John's gospel is also the only gospel that never mentions the apostle John by name. He doesn't mention himself in his own gospel. Nor does he mention his brother, James, who was also an apostle in his own gospel. But then he mentions an obscure guard named Malchus. He mentions Nicodemus in three places. He mentions a man named Joseph of Arimathea in this passage. He's mentioned a former high priest, but he doesn't mention himself or members of his own family. Now, it's interesting to consider the lists of women at the cross in the Gospels. Luke mentions women, but doesn't actually mention their names before the resurrection. Matthew and Mark, though, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, Matthew says, Mary Magdalene, one, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, two, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, three. Mark, chapter 15, verse 50, says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, one, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, two, and Salome, three. So in Matthew and Mark, you have two Marys, but then this third woman is described differently in each of those Gospels. In Matthew, she's described as being the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, the John who wrote the Gospel of John. So Matthew's Gospel says that John's mother was at the cross. Mark does not say the mother of the sons of Zebedee. He identifies the third woman by name as Salome. Keep in mind, John doesn't mention himself or his brother in his gospel or his mother. Even though we know from Matthew that she's at the cross. I'm of the opinion that Salome and the mother of the sons of Zebedee and the sister of the mother of Jesus are all referring to the same woman, which would mean that the Apostle John and Jesus are first cousins. And that'll be relevant in a moment. John mentions two more women. He says, Mary, the wife of Clopas. That's probably the same Mary who's the mother of James and Joseph. And I won't get into this whole debate, but a lot of scholars think that that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is probably the sister-in-law of Joseph, Jesus's aunt on the other side, and Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned in all four. John finishes his list by mentioning Mary Magdalene, and as I said, she is a central figure in being a witness to the resurrection in all four Gospels. This is the first time that John mentions Mary Magdalene in his Gospel, but it matters that he introduced her at the cross because she will be his first witness to the empty tomb, and she will be a witness to the resurrected Christ. So these women and other women are witnesses to Jesus on the cross. Verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The disciple whom Jesus loved, as we've discussed at other times, is the apostle John. And Jesus gives John the task of taking care of Mary. The historical assumption is that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, Mary's husband, is already deceased by this point. We know that Jesus has siblings, 
But during his ministry, none of them believed in him. And so Jesus tells Mary, woman, behold your son. And he tells John, behold your mother. I think that all makes so much more sense when you consider the theory that Jesus and John are first cousins. Again, we can't know that with 100% certainty, but it makes a lot of sense. We see the concern of Jesus that he is worried about his mother's welfare, knowing that he's about to be crucified. And yes, he knows he's going to rise from the dead, but his time after the resurrection is still short-lived. And so he makes arrangements for Mary even when facing the horror and agony of the cross. And it's another example of until the end of his life, Jesus fulfilling the law. As the Ten Commandments command to honor your your father and mother, Jesus is both honoring his heavenly father by going through with being crucified, fulfilling the will of God, and he is honoring his mother by making arrangements to care for her. We come to our second scene, the death of Jesus. John has moved the story forward to the final moments of Jesus' life. From Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus was crucified and his time on the cross lasted for about six hours. In verse 28, John says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, it would stand to reason that Jesus would be thirsty because of his exposure to the elements, the duration of time of the crucifixion, the loss of blood and other bodily fluids. But John says that this points to something deeper than simply being thirsty, in that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Most specifically, it's probably referencing Psalm 22, verse 15, and Psalm 69, verse 21. Now, that might seem like a relatively minor point that Jesus fulfills, but again, the point is that until the very end of his life, Jesus is fulfilling what was written. Back in John, when Jesus mentions his thirst, John records in chapter 19, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The sour wine was a cheap, wine that the average person could drink at the time. We're not sure if it was standard or not to wet the mouth of somebody being crucified, but for Jesus, they do. Then in verse 30, we see the final words that Jesus utters before his death. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. In English, that's three words. In Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. And that is the most significant word that has ever been uttered in human history. It is finished. That is the ultimate victory of Christ on the cross. We were unrighteous, but Jesus completed the righteous life. Sinful people could not follow the law of God, but Christ followed the law perfectly and completely. We were dead in sin. Because of Jesus' life and death, we who are dead can live. God's plan to redeem a sinful world was finished. The Jews and the Romans crucified Jesus. Again, they thought that they had won. But it is Jesus who would have the victory because he died on Friday, but he would be resurrected and the tomb would be empty on Sunday. 
At the end of verse 30, John tells us that Jesus gave up his spirit. Until the very end, we see Jesus in control during his passion narrative. Jesus wasn't killed. Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus wasn't taken by Rome. He gave himself over to Rome. That's our Savior. Giving up his life so that we can live. That's the love of God. That we are sinful. And that our sin does warrant a divine punishment. But Jesus took that penalty for us on the cross. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. I've said this before on past Good Fridays, but for people who have a low view of sin or who have a low view for the significance of our sin and how much it matters, the cross shows us the cost of sin. The cross shows us that our sin was bad enough that the only way that we could be forgiven, that the only way for which our sin could be atoned was Jesus dying for us. That if there had been another way, God would have done that, but there was no other way. And that the Son of God came into the world, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death so that all who believe in him can have life. It is Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice, fully God. And because he is fully God, he is fully worthy to die for our sins and fully man. And because he is fully man, he is like us in our humanity. Now, there's still a lot of action in this gospel and in this chapter after the death of Jesus. Verses 31 through 37 talk about the treatment of the body of Christ after his death. And these details matter for several reasons. Among them, to remind us of the fact that Jesus is dead. We will also see John continuing to look at these events as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So you have Jesus And he's just died. And he's on the cross. And there are still two other men who are on their crosses. It's getting late in the day. They're approaching Passover. And the Jewish people want the the crucifixions complete. And the men to be taken off of their crosses before the sun goes down. It wasn't that they suddenly cared about Jesus or the other men being crucified. But the law of the Old Testament, and specifically of Deuteronomy, had stipulations against leaving a body hanging overnight, lest it curse the land. And so they want these people dead and taken off of the crosses. Verse 31 says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. To break their legs in effort to speed up their death in the crucifixion. And so Pilate has the legs of the two men broken. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But they don't break the legs of Jesus And this will lead into two further Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, they take a long spear and poke it through the side of Jesus to ensure that he is in fact deceased. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
Are the blood and water meant to be symbolic? Some people take it that way. I take it as more John pointing to Jesus' humanity and the realness of his body and of his death. Real flesh and blood given for our sin. John then gives a personal note. Again, he mentioned four women at the cross, but he was there too. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. That you also may believe. As always in this gospel, John does not mention himself by name. But for this instance, and we'll see it one more time at the end of this gospel. The narrator, the apostle John, gives a personal note that he has seen these things. And so he has written his account so that other people can believe. That's really the purpose statement of the Gospel of John that he wrote it. He wrote this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ so that people can believe. John saw what Jesus did. He saw the life Jesus lived and was so changed by that life. John was so transformed by Christ. And so he bore witness to the truth of Jesus for the purpose of other people believing in the Savior whom he knew. Again, John certainly had a unique position in church history. None of us have that, but all of us are in a position as followers of Jesus who have had lives impacted by Jesus to tell others about Jesus so that they too can believe. We naturally share good news. We naturally talk about great experiences in our lives. We naturally talk about the things that we love. Has Jesus transformed your life? There are people all around us with whom we have opportunities to share, to share the love of Jesus, to share the good news. Our world loves to memorialize its heroes. We love to glorify our heroes. We love to remember sacrifice. Again, we observe days like 9-11 and say, never forget. We see someone in uniform and say, thank you for your service. Jesus invites us to share the one truth that brings eternal life. The gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus gave his life so that all who believe in him can live. Verses 36 and 37. For these things took place to, to for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John closes this section by referring again to the fulfillment of two other scriptures. That none of the bones of Jesus will be broken, and that Jesus will be pierced. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the details of those Old Testament passages. But it's another example and another picture of the fact of Jesus continuing to fulfill the scriptures, even after his death, still fulfilling what had been prophesied about him. Jesus had a life, a ministry, and even a death, which is in fulfillment of the scriptures. We come to our third scene. This will be our shortest scene. The burial of Jesus. And there's a few reasons why the burial matters. Most significantly among them is the fact that Jesus is buried, which sets the stage for the empty tomb on Easter. All four Gospels mention that Jesus was buried, 
And John's gospel will note two men who were associated with that burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Verse 38 informs us that Joseph of Arimathea had been fearful of the Jewish leaders. But Joseph works behind the scenes to get Pilate to allow him to bury Jesus. From Matthew's gospel, we know that this Joseph was a wealthy man. The fact that he was able to persuade Pilate to let him take the body of Jesus might have also shown that he was influential and powerful. John also tells us that this man became a disciple of Jesus. Now, imagine for a moment being a disciple of Jesus on Good Friday. Being with Jesus during his ministry. Jesus was still a young man when he died. And at the height of his popularity, he had only been ministering for about three years. And then to see him, somebody who had been so full of life and truth and glory, to see brutally crucified. Again, we know and have the benefit to know the rest of the story, that Jesus rose from the dead. We consider the horrors of Good Friday, but we know that Easter is coming. But for the followers of Jesus, all they knew in this moment was the heartbreak and the searing loss of having their beloved teacher and friend crucified in front of them. While Joseph of Arimathea is only mentioned in this place, in this gospel, John also mentions that Nicodemus was present. Now, John notes about Nicodemus that earlier he had come to Jesus by night. That specific event is in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus approaches Jesus to learn more about him. Now, I've at this church preached about 70 to 75 sermons in John's gospel. And that John 3 interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus is probably the thing I've referred to more than anything else in this gospel. That Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a prestigious teacher, and he's heard about Jesus and he comes to him seeking answers. And it's in that famous exchange where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. We see Nicodemus one other place in this gospel, chapter 7. There, Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees are opposing him. It's almost a riotous scene when Nicodemus tries to intervene and defuse the situation. In the end, we see at the end of John's gospel that it appears that Nicodemus, too, had become a follower of Jesus. Really, Nicodemus is a fascinating spiritual journey in this gospel, where we see him going from questioning Jesus to following Jesus. And the text says that Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and that it weighed about 75 pounds. Now, let's flash back briefly to John chapter 12. John 12 is the series of events when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, in other words, the Sunday before Easter. And so it's less than a week before the events of John chapter 19. 
It's just a few days before. And then John chapter 12, Jesus is eating, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anoints Jesus. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so Mary uses this expensive ointment. We talked about it at the time when we covered John chapter 12, but a pound of this ointment would have been like a year's worth of weight, just an astronomical amount of money. And she gets criticized for using it, that it's too expensive, it's too extravagant. When we preach from John 12, again, we, we talked about this before, that she used a pound of this ointment. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of it. In John chapter 12, it says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Jesus will tell Judas to back off when he says, Leave her alone, so that we leave her alone so that she may keep it for the for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And again, that's one pound. Nicodemus brings 75. Jesus might have died the death of a common criminal, but they're giving him the burial of a king. If a person, if their friends and family could afford it, in this time bodies could be rubbed with different spices or lotions to help with the, the smell. This is long before modern embalming techniques and bodies would decay. Verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The fact that they bound Jesus with linen cloths matters because we will see those in the empty tomb on Easter. Lord willing, we'll revisit some of these verses in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want to focus on Jesus' burial in the tomb. John describes it as a new tomb. And again, this points to the royal treatment that Jesus' followers are giving him after his death. And it is there where the Lord Jesus is buried. Now, we've covered a lot this evening. This is a big section to go through in one shot. But it also fits together as a cohesive narrative as it takes us through Christ's crucifixion, death, and burial. As Jesus is crucified and died, one of the things which is striking to me about these scenes are the people who are around Jesus. You have Pilate who unwittingly testifies to the kingship of Christ. You have Roman guards gambling over Jesus' possessions. Sinful men who do not realize that the Savior of the world is in their midst and they're participating in his crucifixion. You have two criminals on their crosses, crucified alongside Jesus. Again, that points us to the gospel. That Jesus is the innocent man who dies so that the guilty can be forgiven. You have the women at the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think of 
messages we hear, scriptures we read around Christmas time where we meet the young Virgin Mary. She's told of this once in history way in which the Lord is blessing her that it is going to be her who will carry the Lord. But at the cross, her Lord and Son brutally dies in front of her. And at the end of the passage, we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, Nicodemus, a respected man. We see the diversity of this group who have come to Jesus, who have loved Jesus. The Apostle John, who wrote all of this so that people can believe. Something that really matters quite a bit in John's Gospel is the idea of witnesses. You have those who witnessed to Jesus during his ministry. John the Baptist, the Scriptures, the works of Christ. The Holy Spirit, God himself, all bear witness to Jesus. After the resurrection, there will be this theme of seeing and believing as people are witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And it shouldn't be surprising that at the cross, so much of John's attention focuses on witnesses. Those who saw Jesus crucified. Those who saw Jesus die. And those who saw Jesus after he was deceased. Witnesses to the cross. And witnesses to the glorification of Christ on the cross as he gave up his life so that we can live. We remember and memorialize our heroes. At this church, we try to remember that Jesus is the one who made the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus is the one who died for our sins. We try to remember that every Sunday. And I hope we remember that in our lives and our hearts, and our interactions, every day of our lives. And to also remember that Jesus has risen from the dead. That we have a Savior who has come to the world with a gospel that is good news for the world. That that's the message that we need every week, and every day, and every hour. That we are sinful people, but that we have a great Savior. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again we praise you that your Son came into the world. Lord, he came into a sinful world, and that world killed him on the cross. Lord, he came into a fallen world and pointed to truth, and the men loved falsity. He came into a fallen world to bring light, and men loved darkness rather than the light. But Lord, may we be people who live in the light of what Jesus has done, that he has died and risen. Lord, may we be eternally grateful for the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. May we believe in that, that we are fallen people, but we have a great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.